Welcome to Altered State of Affairs, the podcast with Gerald Kazimov, produced by the team at CasSource and part of the CasSource Podcast Network. Altered State of Affairs, the novel also by Gerald Kazimov, is available at your favorite bookstore, including Amazon, Barnes & Noble Online, and most local and indie bookstores. When I got the first manuscript of Altered State of Affairs, one thing that stood out to me was all these quotes you had in the book. I've mentioned this before. I've always, you find a lot of nonfiction in the fiction. But then with quotes in and of itself, they can be telling. And then the quotes that you would use in the book have something to do, for the most part, with the chapter, something that just happened, something that's about to happen. And it made me think. I liked it. And so I just, before we started talking, I just opened up the book and going to some chapters where I know Cindy, the telepathic Eilis doll, appears. It's a little bit after she appears. It's chapter 37. And the quote is, three may keep a secret if two of them are dead. Benjamin Franklin from Poor Richard's Almanac. It's a great quote. Yeah. I mean, it's... It is so true. Yeah. The Supreme Court can't keep a secret, let alone three women or three guys. You know. Yeah. When you were finding quotes to put in the book, did you like know of a quote? I mean, maybe it both. Were you looking quotes up to say, what would fit here in the scenario that these characters are dealing with? Both. You know, some quotes pretty obvious about the Raven and things like that. But for the most part, I looked them up. You can look them up in yeah, yeah. Your different formats. Goodreads has a great quote section. And you put in a word, a topic, a sentence, and literally thousands of quotes come up. So, you know, I found one that was appropriate. Or I found multiple ones and wanted it to be unique to that part of the book and wanted it to be poignant, you know, meaningful. You know, and then some I eliminated later because it felt a little stupid. But yeah, some of these quotes are pretty right on. Yeah. Well, this one comes, and the quote I mentioned from Benjamin Franklin comes right after the time the Cindy comes to be. And if I go back a little bit, and I'm just flipping some pages real quick. Chapter 35 is a point of when I believe you have a flashback of some sort. And you're talking about your grandfather. And at the end of this, it says, oh my God, grandpa sold dolls. And somehow you tied this flashback very closely into, there's something more going on here because this doll comes into the picture and it seems that this is a prominent figure in the novel. And as I know, you're writing a series and now everyone else knows that you're writing a series. This doll is going to be a prominent figure going forward in all the novels. But that, and I'm sure you remember it, how reminiscent about my grandfather, a gun runner for the establishment of the state of Israel, and then ends with, oh my God, grandpa sold dolls. Explanation point, the end of that paragraph, and then we move on. Like To me, that's, that's a very telling part of the book. And I want to know what you were thinking when you were writing it or when you think about it today. Well, what book is fiction, but it's also an amalgamation of a lot of characters, a lot of events, the history of your mother, of her family, and her grandfather, your great-grandfather, owned a children's store, children's clothing store, children's store, they sold whatever, and they sold dolls. And that's where the original Cindy came from. So 
it like all fit. And the truth is, he was a gun runner and very ardent Zionist. So the whole thing sort of came together. Yeah. And I guess we can understand it, or I can understand it, like to the depth of what that is. And if a listener heard this episode and read the book at the same time, that would give them clarity of behind the meaning. But at the same time, they might not understand it the same way as a reader because they have no connection to you or I or any history that we have. But that flashback still, even if you don't know that story, that flashback somehow still like ties into someone who doesn't know you or I from anything. Right. No, absolutely. Yep. So when I wrote this, there are multiple layers of memories that sort of washed together, melded together, amalgamation, I thought. And through all sides of the family, all the histories and everything else, when Aubrey told her story about Tativ, that was my side of the family. It sort of came together. It was one family, really. I mean, it goes back to an extended family. And you wouldn't be here today if it were not for the extended family on both sides. So it's very, I mean, it's just remarkable how our predecessors, our ancestors, what they went through to produce you, your kids, and everything else, and us. So the story's sort of the same, even though they started in different areas, but they all wound up in the same situation. You know, we met at Ohio State and then got to Buffalo and all this stuff. It's just wild when you start there and go back to the roots, the R-O-O-T-S and the R-O-U-T-S of how we all got there. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Great to think about it that way. Is it, I think of like a child playing and let's say when kids are young, let's say you have a girl who's into war games or they have like mini action figures or something and they're playing out scenarios that may have taken place and they don't know the true history behind it, but they know enough. They know enough to act it out. In many regards, like this is a story and it's not necessarily like, it's obviously fiction. It's a fictional story, but it, like you just said, it's based off of history. It's based off of roots. It's based off of the future of where we're going. Did this book or does this book or the writings that you do, does it feel in some regards like play? Because there's like obviously a lot of military stuff going on. So people lose that ability to play like when we were kids, but it almost seems like you're acting out this thing that has way deeper meaning going on than just something you just wanted to write about. Well, there's a connection with everything I wrote about. I mean, if you go into every reaction, there's some kind of imagery, there's some kind of connection or history, feeling of what it is. It all comes together. You know, I guess in fiction, from what I've read and what other authors have told me, you can come up with bizarre plots and this and that, but there's got to be some connection to the author's innards, to, to where that author came from. Previous experiences, previous writings, but things are connected. There's a huge amount of connectivity that goes into fiction. In nonfiction, you know, that's more or less straight up facts and stuff like that, and people can give their opinions when they write you know, biographies of certain individuals. They can opinionize what they learned, but in in fiction, anything goes, but it had to come from somewhere. Yeah. So a writer that's going to write about anything has to have some kind of memory bank about something. I mean, it's just not a blank, you know, microchip where there's nothing on it. I mean, you can't open a computer and have a blank, you know, nothing and start doing computation. And you have to have something there. You have to have software, something there to bind these things together. Yeah. And it could be experiences like you could read a book about multiple homicides 
And the person might have nothing to do with that, but they've only watched Dateline or they've heard about stories. Like they still have experiences where they've could take that and fictionalize it, right? Is yep. that one way to look at it? Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And everything, well, I mean, you can extend that even further, but everything we do, everything you do, we do, we all do, is based on previous experiences, previous learning, previous experiences, imagery. I mean, we go down the stairs and it's based upon what the last time we went down the stairs. It's all up there. Yeah. There. Yeah. No matter how you lay it out, and the next time you go down those stairs or down the path, cross the highway. Yeah. When you get all that out and then you start going through that process of writing, well, now you get into the word iterating, right? Where you're going to change things around. And that's a word. And I think I use it a lot and I've heard you use it as well. And that doesn't just play itself out when you're writing. It's in everything, in your business, in your life, in your, your workout. Like, okay, I worked out yesterday, but I've created a problem for myself the next day. So I have to iterate that process a little bit. Right. When I use that word, whether it's for your writing or anything else you do, it seems to be, it's like, it's very prominent in writing because you're always changing things around and you're adapting. But that word iterating, what comes to mind when I say that? Well, it's just a reshuffling of what's already there. You reiterate, reshuffle, you re-expound. But something had to be there before you can do this. If there's nothing there that shuffle or to iterate or to reiterate, then you're starting with a blank slate. And I don't believe that anybody who puts a word to paper is starting with a blank slate. You got to start with something, you know? Yeah. But the book was, I don't know how these characters came to be. It's just like we talked about it. They just sort of happened. And I didn't do it knowingly developed uh, Cindy. We started developing that character. I had no idea that she was going to be such a force. It just worked out that way. But it was based on all the previous things I knew about Cindy and how much she means to your mother and <laughs> the whole history of where she came from, and the grandfather and all this other stuff. So all this stuff was already there. I knew about it. It's just a matter of making her come. Putting it into words. And the telepathic eyeless doll, like I had said before, and, and you've mentioned this in previous episodes, and obviously it's mentioned in the book, it's a prominent figure. Like that's a place Stephen has to go and he's looking for something, right? Yeah. And Cindy's there. And that's a taking off point for where, okay, now what journey is this author taking me on? Where are we going with this? And just even in conversations offline with you about Cindy, you're even feeling the presence of what that character means. You've always said this to yourself, but to this novel and to the series and to who knows, and to it could be outside the book. Cindy maybe doesn't have all the lines. It's like a musical performance. Sometimes the lead character is the most important character, but a lot of times it's not. It's someone else in there and you're like, I need to pay attention to that person. Yeah. 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 You see what I'm saying? <laughs> Well, so Cindy, she was going to be in the book, and I've always heard the expression that she's watching me. Be careful, she's watching me. She has no eyes, she's eyeless, but she watches, watches over me, watches me <laughs> to a point where I'm aware that she's watching. Her ability to communicate through some subliminal force or layer or metaverse I wrote about it a little bit, you know, it's in the book that the way she 
is able to feel emotion and the way I am able to perceive her emotion is just astounding. And she can't hear, but she knows what I'm saying. And, you know, there's specific excerpts that I wrote about that say that. She can't see, but she knows what's going on around her. I don't know how that happens. Is that a extrasensory perception? I don't know, but she can do it. She can do it. And you might not know, or you might have an opinion of what that is, but like we were talking about before, that's also up for interpretation by the reader. Right. Right. No different than when you listen to a song, the songwriter had an idea of what, it was probably based on an experience of some sort, like we talked about, but it's up to interpretation of, yeah, it would be really... I would love to understand the meaning of what they meant when they wrote that song. But at the same time, I might have my own interpretation of the song. Absolutely. That's useful for me, no different than someone's going to have a different interpretation of like, how does Cindy know this? Well, I think it's because of this. Does that make me right or wrong? No. So maybe all of Stephen's dealings with Cindy were more inside his head than he, mm-hmm. he knew about. You know, maybe it was his alter ego talking to him or his conscience or his parents or whatever. But but somebody was somehow, somebody was getting these thoughts into it. I wrote, uh, I'm just going to read just page 155, the presence of Big C, we call Cindy, is the strangest phenomenon. I know she doesn't really talk or tremble, but she somehow transmits her essence to my being. I don't know how that happens. I just knew what she was saying to me. She can't comprehend, but I understand what she's thinking. She's not able to speak, but I hear what she's saying. She has no feelings, but her mindset is discernible. She can't emote, but her unqualified kindness is evidence, the highest form of wisdom. And it made me feel good. It made Stephen feel good. Stephen says, subliminally, her reassurance is soothing. Can't explain it, but simply having her close comforts me. This is Stephen talking. Maybe through osmosis or some fourth dimension or altered state. And that's where the book comes through. And then I don't have to read all this, but there's a huge scientific area where dealing with extrasensory perception. I get into that a lot in the next book because you'll find out. But a lot of it has to do with mind alteration and communication through different means. And it's fascinating with the research I was able to do, what's going on in the world with the mind. The mind is, it's the most unbelievable thing in nature. We talk about black holes and everything else. The human mind, the human brain is just phenomenal. And they are trying to reproduce it with everything else, but it's amazing. One thing that you were talking about of Stephen, he's got his own interpretation of what Cindy's thinking or what Cindy means. It seems a lot of times he wants answers. He still continues to go forward, even though he's really not getting the answer on this journey that he's on. And someone could think about themselves as you always want the answer. And we were talking about lyrics or words or what something means. You don't always get the answer, right? Like very rarely do you get the answer. And we've talked about Seth Godin and shipping it. And when Seth Godin writes, he doesn't give you the answer. He might suggest that you go out and create something and ship it. Like that's maybe inside of it, you get a little bit of it. But often it's making you think and there is no answer. But we're watching this character play out, Stephen with Cindy. And Stephen wants answers. Like he can't take it sometimes. Like it's driving him absolutely batshit crazy that he's not getting the answer that he needs. But he continues to go forward even though he doesn't have the answer. I mean, his wife 
is threatened. Stephen's life is threatened many times. He's on the edge of of being killed with drone shots going off and terrorists <laughs> shooting him. And Cindy's always there saying she gives him confidence. You know, hang in there. Do this. You're going right. Don't worry about it. I got you covered, big guy. <laughs> that I said it a couple of times. Got you covered. I got your bones covered. And Cindy, now was that Cindy talking? Or was that his confidence coming through and saying, you know, I'm doing this right. And then he's hearing the words from Cindy. But maybe that was his own intuition, you know, all his training that was coming to be. And this is how he perceived it. But Cindy screams at me, this is Stephen talking, Stevie boy, this is crunch time. Grab the brass ring and don't fuck it up. Talking about what he should do next. Who's talking? Is it Cindy or Stephen coming through? I don't know. We'll see. I don't know. Yeah, there's probably trust maybe somewhere in there because he doesn't have the answer, but he's going forward and he's trusting that. Like you said, I have your bones covered. Somehow there's trust built in and maybe that's in life. Like you just trust certain things. If I keep doing this, if I keep going forward, things could work out, but you don't have the answer. But yeah, it's deep. It's deep. I'll tell you that much. (laughs) Oh, that is deep. And so to tie it in with Abra, because originally Abra's doll, and Cindy was stuck in a mausoleum for years. So Stephen breaks her out, and all of a sudden, she's now got this new life. So things happen for a reason. <laughs> so one of the biggest things that Stephen hears from Cindy, and Avra had been saying it, is that Cindy advises the people she loves by telling them to look inward. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean to look inside of a drawer, look inside your pocket, look inside your backpack, where Cindy spent a lot of time? Or does it mean look inside your heart, your soul, your brain, whatever? Look inward. That's the biggest message she preaches. Look inward. So I don't know. So Stephen was trying to figure that out. What does that mean, Cindy? Kept saying, what are you talking about? Let me know. Yes. He wants answers. Yeah. What does that mean? 